good to be with you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you. We're just saying how wonderful and how marvelous it is to know and be known by you and that you don't hate us because of our sin, but you love us. And we know, Lord, that that's not because we're so lovely. We're not. But it's because you are so magnanimous. You are by nature graciousness and love. And we know that you're also a God of wrath, but you and the mystery of your providence have chosen to redeem us and call us into your family. And you love us. That is indeed beyond marvelous. And so we praise you. Help us now, Father. Help me preach. Help your people to listen. Protect us from error, I pray. Fill us with your truth and love for Christ and love for one another. May your name be greatly honored through this church as we live what we believe. We give you praise for it now in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Every day of our lives, we're bombarded with things to think about. Did you know that? Every minute of every day, it seems. In fact, when you take a moment to consider it, 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 you immediately realize that we live kind of under a Niagara Falls-like deluge of information that we have to process at some level. It just seems to come at us from everywhere. One obvious source of that is uh, the media constantly demanding our mental attention. I read this week that the average American gets accosted by over 5,000 advertisements a day. Uh, and that was back in 2007. They might be signs or billboards or digital banners or commercials or jingles on the radio and seemingly infinite number of sources, mostly coming from the internet, bombard us with information that you got to do something with. But it's not just advertising, there's also entertainment. It also has to be considered. Movies, music, humor, drama, news, it all counts. And it all comes. And while we're at it, we ought to include our personal pocket Marvel devices, right? I mean, that's got to be included in the list. The average person I read this week looks at their phone no less than 64 times a day and probably thinks about the experience. A second source of things to capture our thinking are the people around you. It might be your husband, your wife, it might be your child. I know in some cases, when everybody was home, it was all of our children at once. They demand your attention. They, they want your mental energy. They want you to think about them. Sometimes it's your coworker who's mad at you or a friend who wants more of a relationship with you than, than you're willing to give. It might be your doctor or the bill collector or the nosy neighbor. People can just get in your head and stay, and kind of keep your brain occupied, either for good or for ill. A third source of things that kind of come at you and want to get into your heart is, um, is your own heart. So much of our struggle comes from within, not from without. The problem is if your imagination goes south because God has given us an imagination and he's, by the way, given us this marvelous gift of memory that often fails us, but it's there. But the problem is when, when these gifts of God go south, you can find that anxiety or irrational, feels, uh, uh, irrational fears and feelings gets the best of you. If you allow it, to go a different direction, you might find yourself fantasizing about a desirable relationship or promotion at work or that house that you really, really would like to buy. All of it demands your attention. All of it is calling for your mental energy. All of it wants you to think about it or them. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, some of these thoughts are sure to be holy thoughts. Others of these thoughts are just going to be amoral. They, they amount to nothing. And some of them, if we would be truly honest and brought the word of God to bear on them, they would have to be labeled sinful. Some of them just inherently sinful. Some of them sinful because we're how, we're, how we're responding to it. As I studied the passage before us this week, it occurred to me that Paul's concern was not the fact that we get bombarded with things to think about, but rather that we tend to allow it to happen without discrimination. And we just let anything into our minds. And when it comes to our thought life, it's easy to be passive. It's easy to be careless. We, we let our minds wander, and we do it without thinking. We think without thinking. Paul's message is, think about your thinking. Did you know that your thoughts matter to God? It's not just your actions. It's not just your behavior. Your thoughts matter to God. Perhaps it would be helpful to remind us of the teaching of Jesus when he commanded, love the Lord your God with all your what? Yes, or if it's the Matthew version, it's the mind. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. You can say heart, heart, mind, soul. In the Hebrew thinking, they're all the same thing. It's the mission control center of your life. It's the inner person. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. I mean, that's the command. And notice how Jesus connects our love for God with our thinking. Somehow, your love for God and your thinking are connected. He seems to be saying that those who love God do not love him passively but strive to love him even in the secret recesses of their hearts. Did you hear what I read a little while ago out of Psalm 19? Protect me from hidden thoughts, th hidden sin, presumptuous sin, sin that I just, I just do it on. I don't even think it's sin. Lord, protect me. Love for God is evident in part. Your love for God is evident in part. This is not the totality of it. Your actions matter too. But love for God is evident in part by the fact that your love filters what, what gets traction in your mind. Love for God is evident in part by the fact that these things that are crying out for your attention get filtered. You don't let everything get traction in your thought life. People who are trying to love God with their mind exercise discernment. They exercise discrimination about their thoughts. Do they glorify God? And thoughts that tacitly question the goodness, the holiness, the sovereignty and wisdom of God. Consider this. If God created us to love him with all of our inner person, if God created us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, which I am arguing is all the same thing, if he formed us and breathed life into us for his glory, then the reason that we have a mind is that we might use it to discover and declare his glory. That's why you have been given capacity to think. It is so you will discover and declare the glory of God. How, how many times in the Old Testament are we told things like this? Don't be like the horse and the mule. Dumb animals who don't think about anything except what's for lunch. In chapter 4, Philippians, Paul has been teaching us what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. He's calling us to persevere in the faith and not be swayed or derailed by the pressures and people in everyday life. He's teaching us how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which I have repeatedly said I think is, is the theme of the whole book from chapter 1, verse 27. Specifically in this section of the letter, 
He is taught the need for unity in the church, verses 2 and 3, the priority of rejoicing in the Lord. He's, he's talking about living a life that, that is not swayed, is not up and down on the waves. You've got to know something about unity. You've got to know something about rejoicing in the Lord. Third, he talked about the importance of having a gracious reputation, having, being big-hearted. Verse 5, the power of fear-killing prayer. In verse 6, and then finally today, the need for a disciplined mind. If you are going to stand firm, you know what? If you're going to lose the battle, you know where you're going to lose it first? Your mind. You will allow your thinking to go places where it shouldn't go. You ponder, you meditate on things that you shouldn't be pondering and meditating on. So let's begin by reading this text. And uh, let's stand in honor of God's word and read what lies before us. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And you can be seated. A lot of confusion about this text, especially verse 8. You remember in the movie, The Sound of Music, this famous song. Um, this chorus says something about, these are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings. You know, how do I handle that? I just think about my favorite things. That is not what Paul is talking about. He's not saying, listen, when you're down, you want to feel better, just think about these things. It's not what he's saying. I think it's safe to say that many people who self-identify as Christians underestimate the importance of their thinking as a component of their Christian life. And I would say it's central to it. We tend to think that Christians are those who believe certain doctrines about the Bible, from the Bible, that relate to God and sin, our Savior and salvation. And to be sure, that is absolutely true. That is not wrong. Of course that's true. We become Christians when we hear the truth revealed in Scripture. You can call that soteriology, the study of salvation. But you don't know that at the time. We become Christians when the Holy Spirit reveals these eternal realities to our souls, and by the word of God, we hear it and receive it, and we respond in simple faith and devotion to Jesus Christ. The question is, what happens after that? Is that the end of the story? The reality is that while our lives may have been radically changed in one dramatic moment of divine intervention. The Christian life is lived in a series of small, mundane moments that seem relatively inconsequential. We don't live in the big decisions. We live in the moment-to-moment -moment decisions. That's what establishes the trajectory of your life. Moments when you're, you're just at your office, you're doing your job, or whether you're walking through the local mall, or you're sipping coffee with your wife, or you're having a conversation with a friend at church, or you're having a play date you know, with the kids and your neighbor, or, or feeding your newborn. I mean, all of these little mundane moments that don't, in any one of them, seem monumental. And yet in these 10,000 moments... And others like them, the quality of your relationship with God is tested. And you don't even know it. 
Because in all of those little moments, our inner person is thinking, arguing, rejoicing, worshiping, shopping, complaining, delighting, strategizing, or grieving in a manner that is either worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ or unworthy. In those 10,000 inconsequential moments, when our hearts and minds are engaged and we're not even privy to it, they're revealing what we truly love. Someone once said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you value in life. And I would say, show me your thought life and I will show you what you love. Are you loving God with your mind? Are you loving God in the secret places of the heart, your thoughts? Let's look at this a little bit systematically. First of all, your thoughts matter to God, right? If you have an outline, that's the beginning of it. Your thoughts matter to God. The key verb here in Philippians 4.8 is think. Think. Yes, Paul's concerned about how we behave. He'll talk about that in a minute. But he's also concerned about how we think. And so he says at the end of verse 8, think about these things. And this is an active verb, so it is Think and keep on thinking about these things. Now, all of this talk about our thought life may seem pretty heady and philosophical and academic. And, and certainly in Paul's day, when the philosophers were, were cranking out their new philosophies, you know, maybe we don't think like that so much anymore. Um, not generally. You go to the college campus, you're going to find that. And, and I think Paul was just teaching regular people in, in, a, in a regular church, first century church, church, struggling under persecution. I think we know intuitively that it's important, our thought life, because of such scriptures as this, Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks in his heart, so what? So is he. You want to know what a, a man is really like? If you can discover the thoughts of his heart, you know who he really is. In other words, it's not what you say that defines you, but what you think about in your heart. You can say that you love Jesus, but, but how much do you think about him? Now, this is one of those many, many occasions when you just have to know, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. This is the most convicting sermon I've ever prepared, probably in the last, I don't know, months. You can say that you love Jesus, but how often do you give thought of him? How often do you think about God and what he has done when no one else is around? And no one else cares. And you have freedom to think about whatever you want to think about. You can pray with others as if you have perfect trust and fellowship with your heavenly Father. And we do, right? We come together for prayer times and, wow, some of you can really, really pray. And you know what? I, can pray. I got a prayer journal and it's full of scriptures to help me pray, and, and I can sound pretty good. But that may or may not be an accurate reflection of my heart. What do you think about when you're alone and you're in pain? Or you've been betrayed or disappointed? What do you do? What's going on in your mind when someone crashes into your car, and you just bought that car? What do you do when someone hurts your child or says something bad about your wife? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Consider this, when God judges unbelievers, he does it not merely because of their behavior, but because of their secret thoughts. Do you remember why in the days of Noah, God sent a flood to destroy all humanity? It was because, he tells us, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and, and here's what we read. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. He saw that every intention of his thoughts, the thoughts of his heart, were only evil continually. It was the heart that God was concerned about, as well as the actions. Your actions will always be motivated by what you're thinking. And your feelings, by the way, will also be motivated by what you're thinking. We see this again in the Lord's ministry. You remember when he was about to heal that lame man? And before he heals him and raises him up, he leans over, I think, I imagine in my mind Jesus leaning, leaning over real close to this guy and saying, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. We know he said that. Take heart, my son. There he is, lame. Everybody's expecting him to heal him. And he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, there's no record of any protest on the part of the Pharisees. Everybody just sat there and kind of went, and no one said a word. Except Jesus. And they were sitting there quietly like everyone else, these Pharisees. But the text, however, says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your heart? And so you see, beloved, sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart before they ever reach your hands and your feet and your tongue. They're always matters of the heart. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. You remember Mark 7, verse 21, for from within, Jesus says, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I mean, he could, he could have gone on. You kind of get the point. All of these things, they don't come from outside of you. Your sin isn't necessarily what you do with your hands. Your sin, first of all, starts in what you were thinking before you did that with your hands or your mouth. So if you want to test the vitality of your soul before God, don't start by evaluating your words and your behavior. You can always make those sound and look good. Rather, start by evaluating your thoughts. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Beloved, your thoughts matter to God. Your thoughts, your thoughts matter to God. My thoughts, listen, my thoughts matter more to God than my preaching. When he's evaluating me, I mean, I'm not, di I'm not disregarding preaching. Preaching is essential and wonderful. And, even, and you know what? Even if my heart isn't right, if I'm preaching the truth, the Holy Spirit uses it. But in evaluating me, I mean, I, can, I work hard to make a presentation that is going to be logical and, and passionate and rich from the Word of God, but you don't know my heart. God knows my heart. I don't even know my heart entirely. The Apostle Paul said, my, my conscience doesn't convict me, but I'm not acquitted by the fact that my conscience isn't acquitting me, I mean, isn't, isn't condemning me. The Lord knows the heart. Beloved, this is important groundwork to be laid before considering Paul's instruction regarding the virtues he wants to rule our minds. And so your thoughts matter to God. Secondly, your thoughts must be guarded your thoughts must be guarded. If you're, if you're a child of God, this is what he's calling us to. It's not just your behavior. It's what you're thinking, and your thinking needs to be guarded. You ought to have a strategy. You ought to have a plan. How are you going to rule over your thoughts so that from the heart you are pleasing to the Lord? When the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and causes us to be born again, 
we're given a wonderful thing. The scripture says he gives us a new mind. A new mind. Now, that doesn't mean we think perfectly. Doesn't, you know, I wish it, it meant that I could suddenly do math. That would be wonderful. Or write poetry. It's not what he's talking about. You now have a, a mind. You have a new heart. You suddenly love things that you once hated, and you're disgusted by things that you once loved. This is a major difference between the mind of a believer and the mind of an unbeliever. In fact, the New Testament kind of spells out for us in no uncertain terms what is in the believer's heart or what kind of heart the unbeliever has. And we won't take time to look these up, but here we go. Listen to this. An unbeliever has a depraved mind. Romans 1.28 and 1 Timothy 5.6. He has a fleshly mind. Romans 8.5, he has a hardened mind. 2 Corinthians 3.14, he has a blind mind. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he has a futile mind. Ephesians 4.17, he has a hostile mind. In Colossians 1.2, he has a sensuous mind. Colossians 2.18, and he has a corrupt mind. 2 Timothy 3.8. You know what that amounts to? He has eyes that can't see. He has ears that can't hear. And he has a heart that cannot understand the glory of God. Of course, this doesn't mean that unbelievers are incapable of doing good things. To the contrary, they are capable of doing good things. A any person, believer or unbeliever, would see the good that they're doing and say, that's good. They emphatically are able to do good things, but when it comes to how they think about life and even think about the things they're doing, their circumstances, their morality, and God, the unbeliever's thoughts are very, very different. Love for God is not the filter in their mind. Something else is filtering it, if there is anything filtering it at all. It is not love for God. They're not loving God with their mind. And by the way, this is the condition we're all in before God's grace intervenes. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, among whom, that is, among unbelievers, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And we were all in this. I'm not bashing unbelievers by any means. They need what God has graciously given us. But the fact is, God has graciously given us his spirit and his word. Therefore, we are responsible for what is in our minds, what we allow to come into our minds. And so we were dead in our transgressions and sins until God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, raised us with Christ. And now that we are in Christ, however, we have received, not earned, not achieved, but received from God a new mind. And this is how God describes the new mind. It's a renewed mind. Romans 12.2. And in Ephesians 4.23, it's presented as something that we continue to participate in. We are, we are continually renewing our minds. You have an already, it's already and not yet. It's already been transformed, but you have a lot of growth to go before you see Jesus. It's a renewed mind. It's a sober mind, 1 Timothy 3.2. It's a humble mind. 1 Peter 3, 8. Uh, by the way, a humble mind is one who ranks himself under God's word, all of God's word, not just your favorite God's word, but all of God's word. It's a right mind, Luke 8, 35. It's the mind, and maybe this is a summary statement, it is the mind of Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 16. And now that we have a regenerated mind, we have the capacity to think in ways that are consistent with the character of God and shaped by love for God. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan pastor, once wrote, I love this, discovered this this past week. 
Uh, I've changed a couple of words just to make it understandable. The Puritans, you know? Here we go, listen. Holy thoughts and holy affections are the cause of each other. Let me read that again. Holy thoughts and holy affections. I mean, passion, holy passion, holy emotion, holy love. Holy thoughts and holy affections are the cause of each other. He continues, holy thoughts stir up love for God, and love for God stirs up deep thinking about God, which only serves to increase our love for God, which causes us to want to know more about God. Holy thoughts and holy affections are the cause of each other. Even so, however, as believers, we still battle against remnant sin. We still have this flesh, this principle at work within us. We still war against the flesh, and every day we have to put on the gospel armor to engage in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And, and I am hesitant to ever blame the devil. I know he's at work. But more and more willing to blame my own heart. Sometimes, by God's grace, our mind is right where it needs to be. And whether you're in church, you're facing a, a sore and difficult trial. It's almost automatic in such moments to run to the cross, to run to God with all of your anxieties, casting all your cares upon him through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving with requests at other times. It's not so easy. We find our thoughts drifting into faithless worry and discontent and bitterness, anger, lust, self-pity, slander, or some other variety of sinful thinking. And Paul is telling us, and, and you know you might look at this and say, if I were to talk to you about it in the moment, if it were somehow to become evident to me that you were bitter, and I were to say, hey brother, sounds like Sounds like you're bitter. Can I, you know, I need to repent of that. Um, you might say, well, listen, I, I didn't intend to be. I didn't intend to be bitter. I mean, I didn't wake up this morning and open up my Google calendar and say, you know, at 7.45, I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to use about half an hour, get my bitterness out. I mean, it's right there on the calendar. I didn't plan to be bitter or, or lust. I mean, I didn't plan on, I mean, I wasn't sitting around thinking, you know, gee, today I'm just really going to, I'm going to get on the internet, you know, around like nine o'clock at night. Tonight, I'm going to do that. You know, it, it just, it just seemed to me that it just, it just happened. I mean, there it was in my mind. Can I just tell you something about that? Most of the sin we commit, most of the sin we commit doesn't feel intentional at all. It feels like we just discovered it was there. But you know where it's coming from? Intentional or unintentional? It's coming from your heart. Listen, sometimes you just have to pray, Lord, I don't know where this thought came from. I really, I mean, I, I didn't intend to think about this right now. I'm trying to have my quiet time, for goodness sake. And this thought comes into my mind, but I got no one to blame. There isn't anything looking at me. I mean, I'm not looking at, I mean, here I am in my, in my prayer closet. For me, it's my garage. I got a little place set up like this, just like this. And um, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm here to worship and hear this thought. And you could blow that off and say, that's inconsequential. Nobody cares, not even God. Or you can say this, Lord. I didn't intend to have this thought. I didn't plan on it. It was unintentional. But I know this. If it came to my mind, it must have been in my heart. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is my fault. Purify my heart, purify my heart, purify my heart. Remind me once again what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure of heart. Paul's telling us here that as followers of Christ, we must guard 
and keep watch over the thoughts of our heart. Just Just because something pops into your head doesn't mean it's right or true or worthy of Christ. Would we dare admit that much of what comes out of our own hearts is godless? Do we have sufficient humility to confess that much of what we ponder and formulate in our minds is unaffected by love for Christ and a desire for his glory? I remember a day many years ago when I visited the tiny island of La Tortue. How many of you have been there? (laughs) How many of you have heard of it? Me either. It's off the coast of Haiti. I was there with a small team from my church. I was in seminary. This little island is where I preached my first sermon in a little grass hut. We were there in support of a Haitian pastor, and he was trying to plant a church there on the top of the mountain on the island in the middle of the sea. It's amazing. We, we got in this boat and had that patchwork, quilt-like sail, the kind you see Coast Guard picking up, you know, in the water. A two-hour trip across, and, and there were flying fish. I thought Dr. Seuss made that up. <laughs> flying fish jumping out of the water, little wings. When we got to the top of the mountain, we got to his little house, if you can call it a house, We went in, and his wife was so gracious. Everybody was so gracious. And she thought, huh, some Americans are coming to our house. I want to to present them an American meal. And so she created a, a supper that consisted of spaghetti noodles and ketchup. Because there was no marinara sauce available on the island, and fact is, probably, no one had ever even heard of that on the island. To say the least, it wasn't the greatest meal. But I remember that dinner not only because of the food, but because of the chickens and the pigs, whom I'm happy to announce to the animal lovers among us that they were definitely free-range fed. (laughs) It didn't take long to discover that their range of freedom included the house. It included... The kitchen, at least the place where we had the table and chairs, and in some cases, even the bedrooms. And as I ate, the poultry and the swine roamed freely (laughs) in and out between the chairs and under the tables and even into the bedrooms. I thought you would laugh at that. We laugh at the prospect of such a scene, but for most of us, I dare say, it's the same with our thinking. We allow thoughts to range freely in our minds. We have no gates to keep certain ones out of the dining room, no fences to redirect them to the appropriate stall or, if necessary, to the butcher block. We let them roam in the house of our minds without any concern for the damage that they may do or the diseases they may bring. And Paul is saying, my dear beloved saints, think about your thoughts. Consider your thinking. Don't let them drift in and out as they please. Evaluate them. Discriminate between them. Sort them out and put them where they belong. Someone will ask, well, how do I determine whether a pattern of thinking that has come into my mind is worthy or unworthy of the one who desires to love God? And that's a good question. And that finally gets us to our (laughs) text here. Verse 8, listen. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And you could go through each one of these and say, okay, what should I not think about? Well, don't think about what is false. Don't spend your time thinking about things that are unhonorable, dishonorable, 
Don't think about things that are unjust or, here's one for our times, don't think about what is impure or ugly or ungracious. And the list goes on. Paul offers us this list of Christian virtues to guide the matter. It can serve as kind of a spiritual litmus test to determine whether or not they're pleasing to the Lord. Let's just put this in, in the context of this passage. Part of the narrative, and, and we get very little narrative, just a, a statement really from chapter 4, verse 2, about Yodia and Syntyche. They were having a problem. They couldn't resolve the problem. They were after each other. There was obviously disagreement. We can assume there was some anger and some some ruffled feathers, so much so that Paul had to name them and ask for a brother in the body to please counsel them, help them, help them sort this out. It seems plausible that they were fairly upset at each other. And you know, you know what this is like when you're mad? All kinds of thoughts begin racing through your mind. You replay the details and formulate responses and you even... You even deliver those responses to the person who is in your imagination and not there. And you may, you may even deliver something and, and say, well, that, that's not very persuasive. Let me try another tact. And all of this is going on in your mind. It's not even connected to reality. But what would happen if Yodia and Sintichi had arrested their thoughts for a moment and prayed, Lord, help me. Evaluate the words and thoughts that are in my mind right now. And what if they started asking themselves questions like this? Are my accusations true? In Paul's mind, truth is anything that is consistent with the word of God. It's the opposite of what is false, obviously. Or in their case, it may very well be that what they, what they need to really discuss is they need to ask questions about, do they really know the facts? Do they know what the other person intended? What is really true here? What does God say? And what are the facts about the situation? Number two, and one of them could have asked, is it honorable? Right now, in, in my bitter fight with, with this woman, it's all happening in my head right now. But is this honorable? The word means noble, dignified, or worthy of respect. If I really got around to saying what I've been thinking, would it be dignified? Or, or what if she asked, I mean, is, is this right, what I'm thinking right now? Is it just? Paul has in mind here, is it righteous as opposed to unrighteous? Is it in keeping with God's unchanging moral standards? Could it be that in my thoughts toward my sister in the Lord, I am sinning against her already? This, is, this kind of thinking is unjust. What if she had concluded that before she opened her mouth to speak? Or she could have asked, is it pure Paul's thinking, it is, is it morally clean? Is it holy? Is it undefiled? And 1 John 3, 3 says, believers are to purify themselves. It's interesting. There are about three passages in the New Testament, three verses that I know of, where you know, we're always about justification. God is purifying us. God is declaring us righteous. But there's at least three in the New Testament that I have seen where the text says, purify yourself with the means of God's grace. And 1 John 3, 3 says, believers are to purify themselves as Christ is pure. She could have said, are my thoughts toward my sister here? Do they contain profane words? I think many of us would have to admit that sometimes they never come out of our mouths, but in our hearts we say things that would shock ourselves if they were heard. And is it lovely? The word here is used only here in the New Testament. It can be translated sweet, and gracious, generous, patient. In other words, are these words, are these words pleasing 
and attractive to God. Is it commendable? This is another word only here in the New Testament. Is it commendable? Is it of good repute? And Paul is thinking, is it highly regarded or well thought of by those who know and love God? If your pastor were standing next to you and you were to let those words out, what he would say, well done, well done. That's what Jesus would have said. And the last one, is it worthy of praise? Is it excellent in the eyes of God? You know, when you're trying to understand what he's getting at in a text like this where he's being very, really, he's, he's being kind of vague. He's not telling us the object of any of these things. He uses words like, um, whatever is true, whatever, 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 whatever. And then he says, if there is any, if there is any, and then he says, think about these things. And when you're trying to sort that out and say, how do I know what he's aiming at? Answer number one, it's gotta be, it must be pretty broad because he's using such broad terminology. And secondly, it has to relate to this context somehow. And I think a good place to start looking is in the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. Um, I think if either Yodia or Syntyche had used Paul's list of virtues to evaluate their thoughts toward one another, they would never have been so notoriously named in Holy Scripture. We would never have known them, and they would have been so happy about that. (laughs) Rather, they would have repented before God and one another and restored their relationship. But this list can be used to evaluate all kinds of thoughts and intentions of our heart, entertainment choices. I mean, before you go to see that movie, don't you want to get on LinkedIn or Rotten Tomatoes and read the review and decide, is this going to be pure? Is this going to be honorable? Your relationships, especially with someone that you hope to marry, Are your thoughts pure? Are they of good repute? Are they full of truth, God's truth? Are they being governed by God's truth? Or what about your conversations at work where nobody from church is around, your pastor's not going to hear you, your small group leader is not going to hear you. You're sitting there with your unbelieving coworker. What's your language like? What's your humor like? The kind of humor that you participate in on the job or anywhere else, on, when you're out hunting or you're with your, your military buddies. What, what do you think about in your leisure time when you have nothing to do but sit and, you know, what was that thing years ago that said, sometimes I sit and think and sometimes I just sit? But when you're just sitting, what are you thinking about? Where does your mind go? I think that for Christian people who live in a fallen and increasingly godless world, it's easy to adopt the standards of the world without even knowing it. It's easy to develop a taste for that which is false and unrighteous and impure and edgy and disreputable and contemptible and ugly. I mean, it's like a frog in a kettle who doesn't notice the rising temperature of the water until it boils him alive. And so we barely notice the lowering of God's high and gracious standards that are designed for our purity, for our joy. This list of virtues, if we were to have them and implant them in our minds and use them, they can reset our thinking and our affections so that we are able to love the Lord with our minds. You know, some of you, I would dare say, if you were honest, if we were to talk afterwards, I'd say, hey, how's your walk with the Lord going? How's your, my my favorite question, what's the condition of your soul? How is your soul? And you may say, "Um, it's really dry, just really dry, I'm not getting anything out of the word, I'm just, you you know what I hope I'll go after first? What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? And by that I mean this, 
Are you meditating on Scripture? Are you reading good theology? Are you praying with the brothers? Are you being encouraged by their life and their ministry to you? When you begin judging your own mind like this, it won't be long before you find yourself intentionally pursuing thoughts about the glory and majesty of God. You want more of it. You want more of it. You get a taste. You know, you know when I work with men and, and they finally say, well, blessed are the pure in heart, that's got to be the most incredible verse in the Bible because it really is that blessed after you've been impure for so long. They suddenly want more of it. You want more of it. You start spending time in the Word just out of delight. You're not trying to do it because men's ministry says you have to. You're not just memorizing the Scripture because somebody's going to hold you accountable at the end of the week, although that's, that's fine. It's great motivation. Let it not be your only motivation. You will revel in God's forgiveness and grow in thankfulness. As your thoughts of God increase, the temptations you battle will be, begin to lose their power. You begin setting aside time other than just in the morning. You'll be looking for opportunities at lunch or on break or whatever to either read the scriptures or send them to someone else and meditate on the glory of God. And as you use the word to shape your thinking, it will gradually develop into what the Puritans used to call spiritual-mindedness. That is, a mind that frequently and intentionally meditates upon and enjoys the excellencies of God. Oh, for a church full of such spiritually minded people. Oh, for my own heart that it were more disciplined and constituted to love God with my mind in all of the mundane moments of the day. But you know what? That's not going to happen by osmosis. You have to, again, Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Back in the 1600s, Puritan theologian John Owen wrote a little book called Thinking Spiritually. In it, he expressed concern that the only times, perhaps the only times we seem to engage in spiritual thinking is when we're with other believers upon whom we desire to make a favorable impression. We become all spiritually minded. And so he writes, we can test ourselves in this regard by asking whether our spiritual thoughts about God, whether our spiritual thoughts are like guests in a hotel or like children living at home. There's a temporary stir and bustle when guests arrive, yet within a little while they leave and are forgotten. The hotel is then prepared for other guests. And so it is with religious thoughts that are only occasional. But children belong to their house. And they are missed if they don't come home. Preparation is continually being made for their food and their comfort. Spiritual thoughts that arise from true spiritual mindedness are like children in the house. Always expected, and listen, always expected and certainly inquired for if missing. Owen's point is that deep, rich, life-giving thoughts about God should be as natural as the presence of children in your home if they're your children. We have to be intentional with our thoughts. If we want to love God with all of our minds, we have to evaluate our thinking. This is an important lesson for us, beloved. This is an important lesson for me. Paul never teaches us truth without insisting on actions, and so he's going to move from this, but don't miss the points your thought matters before there's any action. And Paul never, however, tells us to think without also doing. And so we come to point number three, and these last two will be very brief. Godly thinking leads to godly behavior. Look at verse nine. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. 
In verse 8, Paul says, think about these things. In verse 9, he says, practice these things. What is he referring to? Well, since he's nearing the end of his letter, it starts off by finally here. Since he's nearing the end of his letter, perhaps he's referring to everything else he said in the letter. That's possible. I'm certain, however, that whether or not he's talking about everything else in the letter or not, he's certainly talking about loving the Lord with your mind. As usual, Paul offered himself as an example to follow. Do you want to stand firm in your faith? Do you want to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? Do you enjoy, you want to enjoy the sweet benefits of loving the Lord with all of your mind? Then take what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Take what I've taught you. Take what I've modeled for you. Anything you can get from me that will point you to God and practice these things. Get busy. Get intentional. Get radical. Paul's never satisfied with our thinking alone. Listen very carefully to this. Godly thinking always produces godly behavior. Godly thinking, there's no other source of godly behavior. Godly thinking will always produce godly behavior. And as we conform to God's way of thinking and living, we will discover that God's way is always best and most blessed. And here's the last point. Number four, spiritual discipline promises divine reward. We talked about this in Calvary 101 this morning. For every command, there's a promise. For every exhortation, there's a promise. You may remember back in verse 7, Paul commanded us to take our anxieties to the Lord in prayer. And then he promised that, it's a great promise, isn't it? That the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The idea there is God's going to set a guard around your fortress, the fortress of your mind. He's going to guard it with his peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the reference to the mind again. Paul promised that when we pray, we will discover, listen, it's careful that you get the wording right here. He promised that we will experience the peace of God. And now look at the promise in verse 9. Practice these things, watch this, and the God of peace will be with you. Those who choose to live according to the divine instructions found in the Bible discover that in the end, they not only get the peace of God, they get God himself. They get the person of God who is the very source of peace and all the other graces of the Christian life. And so I take this to mean you will experience the joy and peace that are known only by those who fellowship with God. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. You get God's peace because you get more of God. For some of you, however, this peace is not available. It's just not available to you. You can't have it. You want it? Doesn't matter, some of, you, some of you won't get it. And the reality is you don't really want it. And I know that. You know how I know that? Because I assume every week there are people listening to my voice right now who have not submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. You have not come to God and said, God, I, the older I get, the, the more I know that I don't need more of me, I need less of me, but I... Until now, I haven't really known what I needed. And I realize what I need is Jesus Christ. You're the only one who can take my guilt, my sin, my shame, and forgive it all. And give me a righteousness that I desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. Lord, will you save me? Will you receive me? Will you accept me on the merits of Jesus Christ? I hope that will be the case with some of you today. Because the life that we want to live, 
a life that is worthy of the gospel and is motivated by loving Christ with your thought life in the most difficult and mundane moments of life is the source of the most blessed life you could ever have. And you can have that through Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hour. Praise you for your word. I pray, Father, that it has been pleasing to you and edifying to your church and that we will leave here today thinking not just about external things, but thinking about the motivations of our hearts. Not that we would become morbidly introspective, but simply that we would give an honest appraisal about whether these Christian virtues are true of us in our thinking. Father, make it so by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.